Good morning, Christ Church Roseville. Thank you for having me here. As Jason said earlier, um, I've been at Christ Covenant uh, Church near the Triangle Town Centers probably about a year and a half now, but I have heard just so many great things about Christ Church Roseville, and I've been really eager to want to come out and see you guys and see what's happening here at Roseville. And I've had opportunities to meet Jim Upchurch and have people confuse us for brothers because of our similar hairstyle, although he's more bold than me and went all the way. I'm trying to hold on for a few more years with this, but we'll see what happens. Um, but just very thankful to be able to be with you guys this morning. If you can, turn to Zechariah chapter 3. We won't be doing 1 Corinthians, but we'll be doing Zechariah chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Zechariah chapter 3. This is what the Lord says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. Let me pray real quick for our time. Father, I thank you just for your kindness in letting us be able to study your word. Lord, the eternal significance of this moment of being able to hear, thus says the Lord. And as a people who were once bound in darkness, and who have heard our names called and trusted in Christ, this morning we get to be fed. We get to come to the one who alone has words of eternal life. So Lord, we ask that in your grace, through the means of preaching, may people leave with their hearts burning, wanting to know more of Christ, wanting to worship him, and rejoicing of the truth of what it means if you're found in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So I used to, back in the day, be a high school athlete. And one of the best things about playing sports was, uh, for me, it was in basketball, was traveling on the road and away games. Now, most folks like to play at home because there's advantages. The crowd's loud, and they give you some momentum and confidence. But for me, I loved playing on the road because when the crowd would get loud, and then all of a sudden you just make a bucket, and it just goes quiet— the silence was just addictive. Like it was the best thing in the world to go into the opposing team's house and to just, you don't hear the fans the whole game because you have just dominated them the whole time. That is a beautiful silence. I love it. Um, You silence them. But there's also stories that I like to follow too. Like um, anytime you're watching an interview of some famous person or someone who's been really successful at something, Often they'll have, as part of their story, is all of the critics or the naysayers or those who were opposed to them. Maybe you were too short to play in the NFL, but then they proved them wrong. Or maybe, you know what, you couldn't actually sing in that key. You'll never make it that big, but actually they did. And all the naysayers are silenced by their success, um, and they prove them wrong over time. And those are sweet stories, and they're great stories, and we love those stories of people being silenced by someone's efforts and leaving them without any accusations to give. But even as we think, too, in our culture, uh, I, I think recently of the, the popularity of Netflix's Making of a Murderer with Stephen Avery, 
or the podcast a few years ago, Serial, where someone's possibly wrongly accused by our criminal justice system, and the sweetness that may come when you're vindicated and silence arises, although not to give away things, but we don't know what's actually going to happen with those two stories, so that's a little cliffhanger. Um, But anyway, nevertheless, we love those stories, but for those success stories, in reality, to the total population, they're like, what, one in a million? I mean, they're rare. For most of us, we don't ever have the opportunity to silence our accusations. I know, for me, being 5'10 and trying to play college basketball, no one said you never will. And you know what? They were right. It was silenced. Um, or and for the dads who were told, you know, you're not going to fall into the steps of your father. But then you realize you just did the same thing he did, the same rash anger, the same yelling at your wife. And you hear those accusations of, you're just like your father, and they ring true. Or the one who, you know, I'm never going to be the guy who cheats on my wife. But then you're the one who does that. And those accusations, when they come along, that I always knew you'd be the one who would cheat on your wife, and they land, and you know they're true. What do you do with those? There's no way to silence them. They just keep beckoning in your ear. They keep pounding away at you. That I really am a failure. I really, these accusations against me that I can't walk this morality, I can't do this task, they're heavy. And it's really heavy when they can't be silenced. See, when we're in the book of Zechariah, we're, this, this is a minor prophet, and there's many visions throughout the book, eight total visions. And just to give you a bit of context before we hop into our story, it'll say at the very beginning of chapter 1 that this is in the eighth month of the second year of King Darius. And so what we know is from the book of Ezra is that at this point, the rebuilding of the temple has started again. Cyrus gave a decree, and they started building, and then it got stopped. And then this... Finally, in the reign of Darius, they were able to start rebuilding again because Darius was brought forth the command from Cyrus to start this rebuilding of the temple. So these are the people of God who were in exile, have now left Babylonian captivity, and they've came back to Jerusalem, and they're trying to start building the temple. They're trying to uh, reinstate what God has commanded them to do, which is the building of the temple and bringing back God's presence where God will promise he'll be in his midst. But we also know during this time that the people were hesitant to do this. They were hesitant to build. They were slow to be obedient to God, even though God had brought some of them already back from exile. And we know in the second vision leading up to our point um, in chapter 3 that God had promised he will dwell. Chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. And so we know in chapter 2 that he, in the chapter 2 he sets a vision out of mapping out the new Jerusalem, this new temple. And he tells this angel in this vision to set these measurements, to set up a measuring line. And to come to find out when they're measuring it, this temple ground is far bigger than the first one. And there's not even going to be a need for a gate, as Zechariah is seeing in this prophecy from the angel, is that the Lord will protect his people. And then it's also told to them that God will dwell in your midst. So they're waiting for to be redeemed. They're waiting to get the promises restored, that they would be with God and once again be united with him. And then we have a pause, um, a different type of vision or account that we see in Zechariah chapter 3. And this is where we will be studying 
for this morning. So let's look again at verse 1 in chapter 3, now that we know a little bit of the context. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, automatically we can see that this is kind of playing out to be kind of like a courtroom scene. We have the angel of the Lord who's standing at the front, and then we have Joshua, who is God's high priest, who is standing there, and at his right hand is Satan, who's coming to accuse him. Now, just for the sake of getting our characters right, let's start with Joshua the high priest. Joshua was the high priest. Now, high priest is sometimes a language we drop often in church culture, and I think sometimes it's good to be reminded of what is a priest, and especially what is a high priest. So a priest was someone who was the mediator on behalf of the people and God. He was the one who would come before God and offer the sacrifices. He was the one who would plea on behalf of the people. He was the representative of the people to God. He was the one who would intercede for them and offer the sacrificial system. The priest would be the one who would change out the bread in the tabernacle and the presence. They would be the ones who did all of the holy work and service to the Lord. But being a high priest, there was also a different honor for that that you got to do. And it was on the Day of Atonement. A high priest in Leviticus 16, only one day out of the year, would be able to enter into the very Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was said to be, and he was able to go in there, and he would offer sacrifice, and he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, and he would confess the sins of the people and himself, and it was this magnificent, beautiful moment where this high priest had the honor to go in where no one else could go, only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. So that was our high priest. He had a high honor. He was able to represent the people, and he had the great ability to be able to go one time a year to walk in to the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God, and confess the sins of the people and his own sins and sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. But then we have Satan, who's standing at his right hand to accuse him. And we also have the angel of the Lord, who the angel of the Lord, um, there could be a whole study on who is this angel of the Lord throughout Scripture, but for now we'll just say it's a messenger of the Lord, and we also know that he speaks on behalf of the Lord because later on he'll say Yahweh. Um, and so he speaks on behalf of him. But when we move to Satan, and we see that Satan's standing at the right hand to accuse Joshua, we, we know everything about Satan in the sense of he's an accuser. We know that he's a liar, that he's crafty, that he's a murderer from the beginning, that he represents the kingdom of darkness, that everything about him is evil. He's opposite of God in every way. He rules over this kingdom of the world. And we know that as a liar and as a crafty one, that he can't be trusted and that he always stands to accuse the people of God and people in general day and night. And so, even though Satan's standing at the right hand to accuse him, we have to stop for a moment and think, in our church, growing up in church life, what is our normal knee-jerk reaction with anything involving Satan? He's, well, he's wrong. He's totally wrong, 100% wrong. He's lying. He can't be trusted. But what's the difference with Satan is that he actually takes a good bit of the truth and then inserts just enough of a lie to make it crafty and deceptive. And so when we first get to this passage, our assumption would be, well, he's standing there and he's accusing Joshua, the high priest, but that's ridiculous. I mean, this is Joshua. You just told me that Joshua was the representative of the people to go before God, so Joshua had to be at a whole other standard of holiness and the cleanliness he had to go through. I mean, Joshua, how could Satan be standing at the right hand to accuse him? 
This just doesn't make sense. Satan's a liar. He's completely wrong. I'm going to check him off. But we actually see in verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Verse 4, it says that, Remove the filthy garments from him. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Wait a minute. Joshua, our high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord in the presence of God in this courtroom setting. And Satan is bringing accusations against him. We're not told what the accusations are, but we can assume it's something about the filthy garments and the iniquity that's on Joshua. And for this moment, it appears as though Satan's right. His accusations are ringing true. Joshua should not be in filthy garments and with iniquity. Now, just pause for a moment. Um, I'm very glad the text says the filthy garments later on is iniquities. Because um, I don't know about you guys, but I went to a Christian college, and maybe you guys have heard different things before. But Christian colleges, um, sometimes you get a whole range of speakers that come in. And um, you never know what you're going to get, just like this morning. And um, we had one come in who was trying to make an illustration about sin. And so he says, I have a white T-shirt up here, and I need one volunteer to come up to the, top, uh, up to the stage. And um, you can imagine, this is those freshman guys. This is their moment to get up in the front of the stage, these 2,000 students. Maybe a girl will see them and notice their bravery, and they'll finally get married. Um, but... So all these guys are raising their hand, and he picks this one guy who obviously was not thinking this morning to raise your hand. You never do that. But anyway, he comes up to the front, and he sits in this chair, and he says, put on this white T-shirt. So he puts on this white T-shirt, and he says, I want to teach you guys this morning about sin. Let me tell you about what sin is. He said, this is sin. Sin is, um, you know, you said that uh, you were going to wake up at 8 a.m., and you were going to read your Bible that day, and you vowed to another person that you'd read your Bible every day at 8 a.m. Well, Monday morning comes, and you overslept, and it's 9 a.m., and you didn't read your Bible, but you go to your friend, you tell him you did. That's a lie. That's sin. And that is mustard. And he took mustard, and he just starts squirting this guy with mustard on his white T-shirt. And then he said, let's say uh, you were with your girlfriend. You went a little too far than you ever thought you would, and you didn't tell anybody about it, and you knew that you shouldn't have done that. He takes, well, logically the next thing, which would be ketchup. And he says, that's sin. And he started squirting him with ketchup. And then he goes through these whole lists of different sins that would be relevant to college students, um, such as cheating or plagiarism or, you know, um, any type of sexual sin or whatever, looking at pornography. And he just starts throwing mayonnaise on the guy, horseradish. I mean, he was trying to make him a hot dog or something, but it was just disgusting, all the stuff he was putting on him. And... um, By the end of his segment of talking about this is what sin is, he looks at this guy in the white t-shirt and he says, See, this is what we are before God. We are filthy and we are covered with all this mustard and this ketchup and this is what our sin looks like before God. And um, it's just hard to listen to it and to watch it because inside you're thinking, Man, I just wish I had ketchup that was offensive to God. But it's my sin and utter rebellion against him. That is offensive. Sin is much, much, much worse than just ketchup or mustard. It has far greater consequences. It actually is separation from God. And that separation will lead to also, if there's no repentance and trusting in Christ, eternal damnation of facing his just wrath for all eternity. Sin creeps into us and it corrupts everything about us where our heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. We can't even trust it in everyday life. 
Sin has crept in. It creeps in with our finances. It affects the way we view marriage. It affects the way we view manhood and womanhood. It affects the way we view work. It even affects our hobbies and our leisure time. It corrupts everything about us, sin does. It's so much more than just ketchup and mustard and horseradish. And I get that he was trying to paint a picture, but there is no adequate way to show the destruction and the evil that's hidden behind sin and what it does and the offense that it is to God. But Joshua, he's a high priest. How could Joshua be wearing filthy garments? How could Joshua have iniquity? I mean, if you're an Israelite at this time, of all the people that you would be trusting and of all the people you'd be looking towards to help you, that would be your um, kind of the ideal that you'd be working towards, it should be Joshua, our high priest. I mean, he is our representative before God. If there was anyone that we should be hoping for or trusting in, that they would be moral and God would be pleased with them, surely it would be Joshua, our high priest. Because remember, a high priest, I mean, just think about his garments for a moment. Moses goes into great detail in Exodus of all the steps that have to be taken for a priest to be clean and to be holy before the Lord with his garments. All the steps that have to be taken for him to be pure and right before he can even come close to doing service to the Lord. So Joshua, our high priest, he's in filthy garments, yet God is ordained all of this stuff in Exodus for how he should be cleaned before him. Why is it that Joshua, our high priest, is standing before the Lord and Satan is accusing him, and for a moment it seems right that he's in filthy garments and that he has iniquity? And this is where we get to the picture that sometimes is so difficult to grasp, and it's this idea that our high priest was faulty, Why was he faulty? He was faulty because his sacrifices that he offered were also faulty. They were failed. They were never supposed to remove sin. Hebrews 10.4 says that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's impossible. So even the sacrifices that our high priest Joshua or the priestly system were offering could never officially remove sin or guilt. They could not do it. Hebrews is clear. We take a clear passage to understand difficult ones sometimes. And Hebrews is clear. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. So let's think about this problem in its totality. We have a high priest who's standing before the angel of the Lord, and we have Satan who's standing there to accuse him. And we should hope, if we were an Israelite at this point, that maybe if there was anyone who could be our hope, it would be Joshua. But yet Joshua stands there with filthy garments, And he has on filthy garments because in the Old Testament, even the very sacrifices he was offering could not officially remove iniquity. They were just a shadow. And so when Joshua is standing here in this moment and Satan is accusing him, could you just imagine what would be running through his mind? I mean, the validity of Satan's accusations in that moment. Yeah, I do have wicked thoughts. Yeah, I am a sinner. Yeah, I do have on filthy garments. Yeah, there is no hope for me. It would be so weighty. Think about the accusations in your life that you deal with on a daily basis or the accusations you hear from Satan of, you're not as holy as this person. You lied to this person. If people knew what you actually thought during the day, you would be totally ashamed. 
if people knew how you actually felt about worship on Sunday mornings, how it was a drag, how you dread getting up, or if people knew how you lacked, that you ran away from some opportunities at Target for evangelism when you're shopping there because you just got to get in and get out real quick. You hear those accusations, and in large part, they feel so true. And Joshua, you can imagine, at par excellence for us, the high priest, the one who you would think would never hear those accusations, is standing there covered in filthy garments and iniquity, totally exposed before the Lord. And in that moment, it feels as though Satan is right. And I know many of us have come to those moments where we are completely broken to the point because we know Satan is right about his accusations of who we are, what we think, and our offenses against God. But praise be to God for verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a burning stick plucked from the fire? In other words, the Lord looks at Satan and tells Satan to shut up. Your accusations stop here. Have I not chosen Jerusalem? In other words, have I not chosen my people? They were burning in the fire. They were burning in judgment. But I have pulled them out. And not only does he pull them out, but he says, take away their filthy garments. Clothe them with festal robes. Okay, got that imagery of the prodigal son coming back and the father taking off his robes and throwing it on him. Put on the festal robes for him. Get him a clean turban. His iniquity has been removed. Joshua, our high priest, has his iniquity removed because the Lord says, shut up, Satan. He silences him. But we have to ask, where's the validity in silencing Satan? I mean, up to this point, John, it seems that he's been pretty spot on. We do have iniquity. We are evil. That his accusations are right. We do wear filthy garments all the time we walk in sin. How can God justly silence Satan? If God is perfectly holy and cannot allow sin in his midst. Remember our context that God will dwell in the midst of his people. Well, he does it through the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb. It comes through Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Christ suffered in our place. Christ bore the full wrath of God. His righteous life is what we look to in faith for salvation. That's why Colossians says that your life to the believers, if you trust in him, your life is hidden in Christ. The scripture uses this language over and over again of put on Christ, put on his garments. In other words, you can be clothed in his righteousness because he was punished for our sins. Because see, Joshua, our high priest, was using faulty sacrifices to atone for his sin. They could not totally fulfill. They were just a shadow, a mere placeholder to be fulfilled by the one who actually could remove our iniquity, and that's Christ. And so that's why God, even though in 526 BC, he can look at Joshua and he can look at Satan, he can tell Satan, shut up and remove away his iniquity. Why? Because he knows that coming one day will be the one who will fulfill all of God's law, and it will be the Messiah, it will be Christ, who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so that's why God can justly remove his iniquity because Christ would come and Christ would be the punishment for our sins and his blood would wash them all away so that those of us who run to Christ for our salvation would be clothed in his garments and God looks at us as if we have on festal robes and Satan and all of his accusations, silence. 
Let's turn to Revelation chapter 6 for a beautiful picture of this. Revelation chapter 6. Now in Revelation chapter 12, there's this fight of between uh, Satan and Michael the archangel, and Michael the archangel takes him down, doesn't even need to call in Jesus, and Michael the archangel just takes down Satan. And they talk about how Satan was defeated, the accuser of our brothers day and night, and how the blood of the Lamb overcame him. But I want to go to Revelation chapter 6, because I think this paints such a beautiful, vivid picture of what it means to be clothed in the robes of Christ and to have the accusations fully silenced. When Revelation chapter 6, there's the different seals of judgment that God brings about, and each seal builds upon the other until we get to the sixth one, which is the most powerful one. It's right up to the final one, which is the seventh, which brings final judgment. Um, but we get to the sixth seal, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. This is the judgment of the Lord in the final day. Hear what it will be like. John says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by the great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their place. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Just remember, God's judgment is not stopped by your social status or anything else. His judgment is total. No one can hide from him. So they're hiding themselves, trying to run from him in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. And in verse 16, they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And then verse 17, For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, this is the final judgment that God is bringing upon all those who have not trusted in Christ, from the slaves to the kings to everyone. They're running, and they're so fearful of the Lamb's wrath that's coming on them that they ask the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to hide them. They're so terrified of his presence that they would rather be hidden by a mountain or have rocks fall on them than to be in the presence of God. And they ask this key question. The wrath of the Lamb is coming. Who is able to stand? Who can stand against this judgment? See, harken back to Joshua when he's standing there and Satan's bringing his accusations and he's in filthy garments and he has iniquities upon him. How is he able to stand before the Lord? Verse 9, chapter 7. Remember our question. John will answer it for us in just a few verses. He says in chapter 7, verse 9, After these things... I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. And what's the next word say? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. They were clothed in white robes. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God. So they're able to stand because they're clothed in the garments of Christ. And they're able to stand before his throne. But that brings up a natural question, right? Verse 13 says, Then one of the elders answered saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, Who are they and where have they come from? These people who can stand in the very presence of the Lord when his wrath comes in judgment, who are they? Verse 14, I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, 
These are the ones who come out of the great affliction, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Those who will be able to escape the judgment, and who can stand before the Lord, stand are those who are clothed in the garments of Christ that have been purchased and washed by his blood. He gave up his son for that. So to think about the picture in its totality, I know we've bounced around and kind of, you may be thinking, so we're in Zechariah and now we're in Revelation? What in the world was going on for a minute there? I hope you see from the picture that we have in Joshua a high priest who would be a far better representative than all of us who's still standing there. He's clothed in filthy garments, and he has iniquity. And Satan is accusing him, and Satan's accusations for a moment seem right. But then God says, remove this iniquity. Clothe him with festal robes. Clothe him with a clean turban. How can God silence Satan justly? It had to come through the cost of his son. And for any person who trusts in the righteousness of Christ and his death and resurrection... Scripture says they put on Christ and his robes. And as we see in Revelation 7, they'll be able to stand in that day of judgment. And Satan's accusations, silenced. And we see it in Revelation 12 when he's cast down. Because of Christ, Satan no longer has any accusations against the people of God. So, church, where does that leave us? What do you do when you sin? Like just last week or just this morning when you sinned, where did you turn to for your hope? Did you, for the believer, did you turn to maybe a certain thing you did earlier that week that you thought was really righteous, that you trusted in to silence that guilt and that accusation? Did you turn to maybe an experience you had 30 years ago to maybe silence these thoughts of guilt and accusation that you have? Or do you think about often your most holy moment to help kind of silence all the sins that have occurred this week? Shouldn't our reaction be when we fall to not try to silence the accusations of Satan and the guilt on our own terms, but to run to Christ and seek repentance first through his blood and then ask him to give us the strength to turn from those sins? And for the unbeliever, where do you turn to What will you depend upon to silence Satan when that day comes and you stand before the throne of the judge of all the earth who sees through every lie and knows every intention perfectly? What will you depend upon? Your own works? Your own goodness? Your donations to charities? There is only one person to depend upon, and that's Christ. For there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. So, This morning, church, I want us to leave those of us who trust in Christ rejoicing greatly that I could never silence Satan on my own, but Christ silenced him for me. And praise be to God, this week, any time an accusation comes that is true of my failures and fallings this week, I can trust in Christ, and that accusation and that guilt is silence. So rejoice that you wear his robes if you trust in him.
Let's take a moment of silence and reflect upon what we trust in to silence the accusations of Satan. And then I'll close this in prayer.